Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please, if you haven't done so, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Lord willing, that is the last time I will say that to you because my plan is to finish out this chapter this morning. Uh, In God's providence, we come to a story that is unique to the gospel of Luke. No other gospel record contains this particular account. This is a passage that sort of caps off the dominant theme that we've been seeing, um, which is the saved sinner in contrast to the self-righteous rejecter. And so before we get into it, let me read the verses that will be in this morning, which is verses 36 to the end of the chapter. This is a relatively longer set of verses than we're used to working through, but this is a self-contained unit. And so my plan is to work through this entire passage. And this is a wonderful account, not only showing the extent of God's forgiveness, that is the kind of sinner that he is willing to save, but also shows how he intends to then use that purpose for his divine, that person for his divine purposes. Just reflecting on in the backwards kingdom of God, he almost always seems to use the weakest for his purposes. And that is what we see again this morning. So Luke chapter 7, and we're in verses 36 through 50. Here's what Luke writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. 
And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me begin with a question. Uh, When you think about sharing your faith and you think about evangelism and you think about the process of giving the gospel and all of your particular what we call missional efforts, what do you think is the most compelling influence to accompany your evangelism? That is to ask, what do you think is the most powerful catalyst or has the most impact on a person as you speak forth the gospel? Obviously, you have to speak the content of the gospel. You have to speak truth. Uh, The spirit we know is the one who causes a rejecting heart to receive. The spirit's the one who makes the dead heart live as you faithfully declare forth that message. That is a theological truth, but in practical terms, what is it, do you think, has the most impact on a person as you go about that process? Is it, for example, a carefully constructed, irrefutable, apologetical argument? Is it the promise and offer of a happier or more meaningful life? Is it the promise of having your sins forgiven and the promise of eternity in heaven? Is it the offer to rid a person perhaps of that internal guilt which seems to haunt so many when they're all alone with their secret and private thoughts? What has the greatest impact on a person to embrace Jesus Christ as you speak forth the gospel? I think without question, one of the most powerful influences is the testimony of a transformed life. Evidence can always be marshaled against an apologetic or rational argument. A happy or meaningful life is the essence of what sin already offers. It will, of course, always fail a person. We know this, but nevertheless, that seductive lie is what lures a person into its traps. There are plenty of therapeutic techniques or regular amusements to sort of numb a person to that internal guilt that they feel. But I think what can't be denied is when an unbeliever who is hostile to the gospel witnesses before their very own eyes the personal transformation of a sinful life into a holy life. That is a very persuasive case, I think, to the truth and the power of the gospel. As your friends and your family and coworkers all of a sudden see such a radical change with your life and your speech and your various pursuits and the decisions that you're making, that is an experience that causes a person, I think, to become intrigued. And some of you have experienced that. And that is essentially the essence of this passage this morning. This is something certainly true throughout the history of the church, but here we already see Jesus understanding the power of transformational testimony. And so we come to an account here in which we meet a woman with a very tainted and scandalous and shameful, sinful past whose transformed life Jesus uses to demonstrate the truth and the power of his message. It is the life of the transformed sinner that Jesus desires to use. 
And so I hope for many of you, this will be a hopeful and encouraging passage. There are many of you who have come to Christ recently, and so this time is ripe for you to have incredible impact. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that the more shattered your previous life of sin was and the more powerful your transformation and the more powerful your transformation then the more potent perhaps your testimony. And so Jesus uses the life of this woman to evangelize a Pharisee. And this is not so much a story about the woman. She is not really the point of the story. Rather, this is about Jesus demonstrating that a transformed life is what makes the message of his gospel so compelling. And so look with me, if you would, to verses 36 through 39, where we encounter this woman. And so in verse 36, the scene is set for us, and Luke records, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, this is very interesting because this has been a section in which Jesus has been essentially contrasting himself with the Pharisees. In fact, since about chapter 5, the Pharisees have been on a mission to trap Jesus. Uh, They've been sort of dogging his steps and hoping to catch him in some sort of act or catch him in some kind of blasphemous statement for which they can level a charge. They are not happy with him. They don't like that he is, at this point, stealing the religious spotlight. And so while everyone is intrigued with Jesus, the Pharisees have now collectively agreed to get rid of him. He is a threat to the religious system. He is now a threat to their power. And so this is not an invitation by this Pharisee to learn from Jesus in some way. This is not mere curiosity. This is not a well-intentioned man who's merely trying to show hospitality. In fact, in verse 39, you'll notice that he says secretly to himself that this man is surely not a prophet. And so likely he has brought Jesus into his home, but for the purpose of determining and establishing once and for all that he is, in fact, not who he says he is. And so he wants to loosen him up a bit to try and get him to incriminate himself. And so he invites Jesus into his home where Jesus is now reclining in a relaxed position. And so Luke says in verse 37, notice that a woman in the city who was a sinner learns that Jesus is reclining at this Pharisee's house and so she brings in with her this alabaster vial of perfume. Now, there is some question as to the nature of this woman. The commentators love to debate. But it's pretty clear who she is or what she is because Luke uses this descriptor here that she has noticed a woman in the city and that she is a sinner. And so it is rather obvious that this woman is a well-known adulteress. She is in all likelihood a prostitute. She is a woman of seedy reputation. In fact, everyone would have known who she is and what she is. And because Luke describes her here as a sinner, which is an unambiguous descriptor all throughout the Gospels that when speaking of a woman in particular is always in reference to a prostitute. In fact, that word sinner, as it is used in the Gospels, has a certain disdain to it. We understand the word in a more theological sense, but this was a label used in this culture to designate those who have heaped upon themselves societal shame, societal scorn. 
And so she is a woman of tremendous scandal. She is unclean. She is base in the eyes of Jewish culture and certainly in the eyes of the religious institution. She is, in fact, only one step above a tax collector. And so this is a woman of a shady past. She has a very shameful past. She has a past that very few could compare with. At this point, she has zero dignity. She has no respect. The entire society looks upon her, no doubt, with exceeding contempt. She has no value in their eyes. In fact, there is absolutely nothing redeemable about her. She's a person with whom no one would want to associate. In fact, little doubt she would have even despised herself. And because she knew what she was, she knew what she did, it was now impossible for her to escape that reputation. And so in an honor and shame society, this woman whose past decisions have caused her to be stripped of everything. And there is no reversing of that which her sins have brought upon her. And perhaps worse than anyone else's thoughts of her are her own thoughts of her. And so she enters the scene here with a vial of perfume, again, something that any prostitute would have had in very great supply. These were cylindrical vials made of alabaster. They had these long necks on them that you'd actually have to snap off. They were uh, sealed very well, and because they contained some very expensive and very potent aromatic spices. And so everyone knew when a prostitute was around. You could literally smell it. It was very unique. It was, again, an aromatic spice. And so this woman enters into the house of Simon. Now, depending on your translation, verse 37 begins with the word behold, and that is a very important word to notice because it heightens the drama. This is shocking. This is something utterly unexpected to these people who were here dining with him. And we know that this is a gathering because of verse 49. And so in walks this woman of reputation, and she has come for one reason and one reason alone, and that is because Jesus is there. And so in verse 38, we see that she is described as, notice, standing behind Jesus' feet and weeping. When they would recline at the table, they would sort of lean on their elbow and their legs would sort of stretch out behind them. And so she is behind Jesus at this point. And these, these dinners aren't really inside of the main living area of a home. That would have always been on the upper level. Rather, this was more of a semi-public area in the lower portion of the home. It's uh, interesting to read the history, but they'd basically throw open the doors onto the street and anyone who's out there could actually come in and stand along the edges of the room and listen in on the conversation. In fact, it was almost a form of entertainment. It's how the people would hear and learn about the various goings-on in society, especially if the one hosting the dinner was one of the societal elite, which was certainly the case here because Simon is a Pharisee. And so it's not really all that strange that this woman would come in, but what is strange is that she is a prostitute. That is what creates the shock. This is an unclean woman entering the home of a Pharisee. And so Luke describes here now incredible detail in verse 38. It's almost as if the narrative slows down so that he could draw you into the momentum of the moment. 
And so Luke describes her here, first of all, in verse 38, as weeping. In fact, notice, again, she is standing behind Jesus, and as she cries, her tears begin to fall onto his feet. She is flooded with emotion. She is overwhelmed by what she is and therefore what Jesus is for her. In fact, Luther describes her tears here as heart water. That emotional dam within her just bursts open and outflows his flood of tears. And so she's standing behind Jesus. Her tears fall on his feet. And so she looks down and she notices where they're landing. And so what she does is she kneels down and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Now you have to understand that that is a social disgrace. In fact, for a woman to let down her hair in public was an extreme act of impropriety. In fact, according to Jewish custom, it would have been enough for a man to divorce his wife. That is exceedingly immodest in this culture. Furthermore, only servants and slaves wash the feet of people. It was custom to anoint the head of a guest with olive oil. We see that in verse 46, for example. But you wouldn't get anywhere near the feet. That was the job of your slave. Feet were dirty. Feet were dusty. It would be very inappropriate to touch a person's feet in this culture. And so if you had a guest in her home, you would, of course, have a basin of water there for them to wash their feet. But it was always the job of your slave to do that. And so for this woman to do the job of a slave and to do it by letting down her hair, that is a very shameful action. And so the point of Luke here giving such slow, dramatic, and intentional descriptions is to heighten the emotion and the drama of the moment. In fact, the word here for wetting the feet, it's, it's the term breko. It's the Greek word for raining. Her tears are literally raining down on his feet. Notice also the continuous actions of the verbs. She just keeps on wiping his feet. And not only was she wiping his feet with her hair moistened by the tears of her eyes, but she's then described at the end of verse 38 as notice, kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. And again, those verbs are in the imperfect tense, which is to say that they convey a continuous incomplete action. She is crying and weeping and kissing and anointing over and over and over again. This is a flood of emotion. This is an out-of-control response of this woman. In fact, that word there for kiss is a very intense word. It's a word that's used to describe the kissing of the, the father for the prodigal when he returns home in chapter 15 of Luke. And so this isn't just a subtle little peck. This is a kiss of very deep affection. It is a kissing over and over again, and here all over his feet. In fact, in chapter 15, with the father toward the prodigal, he was kissing all over his head. He was kissing his face. He was kissing his neck. This was an extreme act of affection. And so the amount of social transgression that is taking place in just this one verse alone, this is shocking, But here's a woman who is so overwhelmed by emotion that she throws off all social propriety and mostly because she's gotten on anyway. But she fractures these social norms because she is utterly overwhelmed. 
And so this becomes somewhat of a precarious position for Jesus, as you could imagine. This, in fact, could turn into a very difficult situation for him. First of all, she is a known prostitute. She comes straight in for Jesus. She lets down her hair. She's now touching him and washing his feet. She continues to just embrace his feet as he reclines in a rather relaxed position. She's holding him and kissing him and expressing emotion. She's now doused him with her perfume, which again was a very aromatic and expensive perfume. And so the scent of this woman, which everyone knew what this scent was, is now all over him. And not only is it on him, but it's now filling the house of this Pharisee, which, as you could imagine, would have made him very uneasy. And so as one man points out, it would be rather simple for someone to make the obvious connection as to how in the world this prostitute feels so comfortable and so familiar with Jesus. This is not how you interact in public with a stranger. This is how you interact with someone that you know and that you know well. And so in verse 39, Simon the Pharisee privately says to himself, notice, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, he is probably not very thrilled that she is in his home. But the touching of Jesus by this woman is what becomes of significant concern. And what's interesting is that notice, as a man who's trying to incriminate Jesus, he doesn't wonder in his mind at all if Jesus has somehow been with this woman. Rather, he simply questions the status of Jesus as a prophet. And because if Jesus were a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman this was. And if he knew what kind of woman this was, then there'd be no way in Simon's mind that Jesus would ever let her touch him. And that is such an important observation because it means that there was nothing in Jesus' life for which even his worst of enemies, namely the Pharisees, could accuse him of in terms of being familiar with this woman. That is to say that not even his worst of enemies could go there. They could not cross that line. No one could accuse him of that. But if you were trying to get rid of Jesus and expose him for the fraud that he is, well, this is the perfect opportunity. And yet he could not do that. Jesus had such a purity, such a righteousness about him that there was no way that the Pharisee could ever convince the public of such promiscuity. And so if the Pharisees were going to trap him, they didn't have to trap him on some trumped-up charges of something like blasphemy. They had to try and exploit him on something religious, something that he was saying or something that he was teaching here. And so what Simon does is he questions the prophetic claim of Jesus. If he was truly a prophet, he would know what sort of person this is. Even the most simple of mind understood that. And so as far as Simon is concerned, Jesus has zero insight. He can't possibly possess divine wisdom and discernment. And so as one man writes, no one trying to be accepted as a prophet of God would ever allow such an unclean woman to touch him. And so the tone of Simon's internal comment here is understand a kind of satisfied attitude. 
Obviously, there can be nothing special about him, for if he was a prophet, he'd know something so basic. Prophet needed to remain clean. He needed to remain unstained if his message was going to have any credibility. And so this was a disgusting scene to him. He was appalled by this woman. He was appalled by what Jesus would allow this woman to do to him. This was such a well-known woman in the city. And so if Jesus was truly a prophet, then he should know better. And so again, you should read that statement of Simon there as a kind of self-satisfied assessment. He brought Jesus into his home for the purpose of discerning who and what he is. And so now he has his answer. And so in verses 40 through 43, Luke transitions from the sinful woman to describing now the self-righteous Pharisee. This is the self-righteous Pharisee, 40 through 43. And notice Jesus answers him in 40, knowing what he's thinking. So Simon said nothing out loud. He's got no questions, but Jesus just being that omniscient God of the universe can read minds. And so in a somewhat ironic twist, well, Simon thought that he knew what Jesus was. It turns out Jesus is the one who knows what Simon is. And so he says, end of verse 40, notice, as if interrupting any conversation that was going on, hey, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replies, say it, teacher. So cordial, but somewhat tense response. It's sort of like, Speak on, say what you have to say, so respectful but cold. So Jesus then replies with something here that has come to be known as the parable of two debtors. This is the parable of two debtors. And so he says in verse 41, a money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more. So typical of Jesus, he gives short but simple story, offers a simple question. A denarii was about a day's wages. And so the one man who's loaned 500 denarii would have been about a year and a half worth of wages. The other is loaned 50, which comes to about two months of wages. And so the debt collector or money lender here comes along, but notice forgives both debts. And specifically here, he forgives them both. Why? Well, precisely because neither could repay, which, as you know, if you've ever taken out a loan, just does not happen, right? There is no money lender or bank, even in our day, who just forgives loans. Government likes to do that, but banks don't. And especially motivated by the fact that you can't repay. That that just does not happen. And so both of the people here are described as owing a significant amount of money. Two months wages is a lot of money, but how much more a year and a half? And so what Jesus says here is the money lender just cancels the debt. That is to say, it goes away. In fact, the word here for graciously forgave in verse 42 is the word charizomai, which for those of you who know, the root there, word there is charis, which is the word for grace. In fact, that is the word that is used by Paul most often to speak of the idea of forgiveness. It's literally the idea of canceling or pardoning a legal debt. 
And it's a wonderful image because what you have to understand is that what makes grace grace and what makes forgiveness such a generous action is that the one who forgives the debt now incurs that debt in full. It's not like the debt just sort of dissipates into the universe somehow. Debt still needs to be paid. Someone has to incur in some way some sort of loss. And so the one who forgives the debt that is owed to them, they're essentially saying that that debt is now mine. Cost is transferred to me. I bear the loss of your debt. And so what's going to make this such a shocking parable for Simon is that because Simon is a Pharisee, as I said last week, his only conception of God is that God is a God of justice. And so he is only righteous and therefore demands absolute and perfect justice every single time. Which is true. That is an accurate and proper understanding of the character and the nature of God. There will be no sin that goes unpunished. We know this. God will pursue and fulfill the full penalty of his law. Exodus 34 and verse 7. He will by no means clear the guilty. And so God is a God of righteousness, which is to say that he demands perfect justice. But what the Pharisees could not understand and had zero ability to comprehend is that God is also a God of grace. That is to say that there was no conception in the mind of the Pharisee to view God as the one who could somehow incur that debt. And in his gracious nature, he still pursues that full measure of the law, but he is the one who takes on the penalty of that law. That would have been an irreconcilable concept in the mind of any good Pharisee. But that is grace. That is charizomai. That is a legal pardon. This is canceling that which is owed, but then taking over the payments. And so in verse 42, he asks, notice, so which one will love him more? Who's going to have a greater love or affection for the moneylender? And it's a very interesting question because it's actually a statement that comes very close to the terminology that Socrates would often use when he would finish a line of questioning. The answer to the question was so obvious, and so it's a rhetorical tactic to betray a blind spot in the opponent's position. And so in verse 43, Simon answers the obviously right answer. He says, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave. So he is suspecting that Jesus is perhaps setting him up. But Jesus gives a very straightforward response. Notice he says, and you have judged correctly. Very clear, very simple. This Pharisee may have had no category in his mind for God being a gracious God, but his answer reveals that he certainly understands the concept of grace. He understands this, and he understands that it is virtuous. And 
And so he understands that there is a rightful flow of love from the one who has been shown grace. One who's been given that which they don't deserve, but at great cost to the partner who has now incurred the debt. And so in verses 44 through 50, we then see the saving fruit. We've seen the sinful woman, 36 to 39. We've seen the self-righteous Pharisee, 40 through 43. And so this now is the saving fruit, 44 through 50. And this is where Jesus now applies what he just said. And so the principle is is clear. The greater the forgiveness, the greater the love. This isn't complex. Anyone can understand this. In fact, even a Pharisee can apparently admit this. Jesus just got Simon to utter that truth and that principle from his own mouth. And so getting him to admit it for himself, Jesus now turns to the woman, verse 44. And so notice he says, and turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, of course he sees this woman. I mean, this entire issue is precisely because he sees this woman. But what Jesus wants him to see, and hear this, what Jesus wants him to see is himself in the woman. Or at the very least, expose the fact that he doesn't see himself in the woman. Which, of course, is the heart of the issue. That is the issue. The self-righteous person never sees himself as a sinner, or at least all that bad of a sinner. There is always someone far worse than them that they can point to. Which, by the way, is a very deadly place to be. If you've made another sinner who is worse off than you the standard of righteousness instead of a perfect and holy God is that standard of righteousness then you don't understand righteousness and you don't understand the place that you sit. That is a very dangerous place to be and no doubt will be the cause for many people who hear those words in Matthew chapter seven and that final day, depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice unrighteousness, Self-righteous people are very skilled at observing the sin and the hypocrisy in everybody else. But they are blinded to that which they can't see. They cannot see themselves as being in the exact same position as this woman. And so Jesus says, observe the woman. Do you see yourself? That is the question that he wants Simon to answer. And the question, beloved, that Luke wants us to answer. Middle of verse 44, notice, for I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. So for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many. That is to say that they are far greater than yours, Simon. She is the 500 denarii debtor. 
but her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. And so she loved much. And then here's the key, which becomes a self-incriminating blow that Simon cannot understand about himself, though it came out of his very own mouth. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And that is such a profound statement. The level of your love for Christ, hear this, is a direct response to how much you understand that you have been forgiven. That is to say that the self-righteous person loves Christ little. Why? Because he does not see himself as needing to be forgiven. Some of you have been in the faith for a long time. And you have noticed perhaps times in your life in which your heart has grown cold or tepid toward the things of God. Maybe life has crept in, you're still faithful to church, you're still sort of moving along that Christian path, if you will, but you're also very aware of that coldness or that tepid, apathetic indifference that can often creep in. Perhaps the reason, beloved, for why that happens is that you have simply lost perspective as to the enormity of the debt that you owe. And not only have you perhaps lost perspective of the debt incurred that you cannot pay, but you've lost perspective over what it means for the forgiver to now incur that personal debt. You wonder sometimes how people can stay so focused and so disciplined and so passionate about the things of God and live on mission for Him and always just be caught up in wonder, love, and praise all the time, or drive to honor Him and to make Him the sole object of their worship and delight seems to be inexhaustible. Well, you show me a person like that, and I'll show you a person in all likelihood who's not yet forgotten the wretchedness of their own sin. They've not forgotten the gravity of what it means to owe an eternal debt to an eternal judge. In fact, this is why people who are converted later in life and therefore have an entire life of wretched sinning in their account, they seem to be the most passionate evangelists. You ever notice that? They've got good news for the worst of sinners, and so they are so motivated by what Christ is for them that they're not at all concerned about looking foolish for the sake of the gospel, as this woman wasn't. They remember what they were. They remember the extent of their pardon. In fact, what so much stands out to me is how this woman's tears just kept on coming. Verse 38 Because in verse 48, when Jesus says to her that your sins have been forgiven, that is a statement that is written in the perfect tense, which means that it is a stative verb. That is to say that her sins are now in the perpetual state of being forgiven. 
You should not understand your sin as being forgiven sometime in the past and then you just move on. That is not how this works. Rather, since your sins are an eternal offense against an eternal God who sits outside of time, then your sins, hear this, need to remain in an eternal state of being forgiven. You and I in our finitude can easily forget about sin, but God does not. And so he is always and perpetually and eternally angry with sin, but he is also simultaneously, equally, and perpetually pleased with the sacrifice of his son. And so if the sacrifice of his son doesn't remain perpetually before his eyes for all of eternity, then the only thing that remains is his wrath for you in perpetuity. And so if you are in Christ and your sins are in the perpetual but ongoing state of remaining forgiven. That is an ongoing past, present, and future issue for God whose infinite perspective sits outside of time. This is a forgiveness that remains and must remain before his righteously holy eyes for all of eternity. And so for eternity future, you will always and only be, understand this well, a guilty sinner. That is the verdict. But you will always and only be in the perpetual, consistent, ongoing state of pardon. As the reformers used to put it, you are simultaneously both just and sin forever guilty, but forever pardoned. Which is to say that the mediating work of Christ, therefore, on your behalf will be a perpetual work that must go on into eternity future. He will remain that forgiver, that atonement, And you will no longer experience the effects of sin in heaven, but that is not to say that you will somehow not still be guilty of your sin. You will always be a guilty sinner and in the state of a guilty sinner, but the good news is that you will always be in the state of being a pardoned sinner. And so this woman comes to Jesus in verse 38 and is in the state of weeping, the state of weeping over the fact that her sins are in the state of an abiding and ongoing forgiveness. And so what that produces is an abiding and ongoing love for the Savior from within her. Which is to say that the moment that you lose perspective of the wretchedness of your sin and therefore the debt that you owe, you lose awe over the depth of your forgiveness. And when you lose perspective over the depth of your forgiveness, that is always when your love for Christ grows shallow. But the greater your sin and the greater your awareness of that sin and the greater your devotion to the one who's pardoned you, the greater devotion to the one who's incurred that eternal debt from you. So why do we preach so much on sin at this church? I get that question from time to time. 
It's not to make you feel bad. We preach on it because the moment that you lose perspective of the depth of your sin, then that is the moment that you lose perspective of the depth of God's love for you. That's why we preach on sin. And so this woman's affection and love for the Lord flowed from an abiding awareness of the debt taken from her. And Simon did not see this. He could not see his sin. And so he had no affection for Jesus. In fact, the issue for him was, for him was merely transactional. He thought that if he performed certain religious regulations and offered certain sacrifices, then his debt was somehow paid and that he paid it. And so his soul could not produce a love for Christ. And why? Well, because he thought that he had no debt. But those who understand their debt, these are the ones who will produce the most love. In fact, you even see that in verse 49. Luke states that those who were reclining at the table with him, presumably other Pharisees and other religious people, they began to say to themselves, notice that, they began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin? Who does he think he is? Forgiving sin. They could not see it. But this woman's guilt and shame were gone. Her burden was lifted, her debt was paid. And so from the affections of her own soul, she was now free to throw off all forms of shame, but to now serve Christ. And what a freeing place that is. She loved him. But the one who produced no fruit was the one who saw within himself no sin. He did not serve Christ. He did not wash his head. He did not wash his feet. Flowing from an intimate understanding of her forgiven position, this woman, notice, does not anoint the head of Jesus. Rather, she takes her most expensive perfume and anoints his feet. And it was no loss to her in the service to Christ. She had no shame touching his feet. That was a joy. That was a privilege. And that which was used for a sinful life is now redeemed in the service of Christ. She cracks open this vial and expressing her singular devotion to the one who's restored her shame, she pours it out all over him lavishly. Because this is love. This is love that flows from a transformed life. Lavish love and devotion comes from lavish forgiveness. And so Jesus tells her here in verse 50, notice, your faith has saved you. So go in peace. Literally, go into peace. Abiding peace. Dwell within that realm of wholeness. It would have been the concept of shalom. 
You know, what saved this woman was not her self-righteous works of the law, but her self-understanding of her own self-wretchedness. And so knowing that no work of the law could save her, she does all that she can do, which is to simply cast herself at the feet of Jesus, literally. And she trusts by faith that he can wash all of her impurities white again. And that is exactly what he does. Tells her to go in peace. Go in peace. There is now an eternal peace between her and the righteous God of the universe. No debt owed, no price needing to be paid. Rather, it was through her faith alone that salvation came. Notice that. It wasn't because she washed his feet that he forgave her, not because she sacrificed her perfume that he forgave her. It wasn't because she bowed low and offered some kind of religious contrition or repetition. Rather, all those actions flowed from a heart of faith. Those things were the fruit of her salvation. She had heard at some point of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. She had heard his message of salvation, his message of deliverance from sin. And so she comes to him. She knew he could provide that. She knew that hope of forgiveness was wrapped up in his prerogative to pardon the sinner. And so having received that forgiveness, notice again, by faith alone, she models for us now the life of a transformed sinner. Her salvation was not evidenced by something that she said, for as we've been seeing, words are incredibly cheap. Her salvation was evidenced by her love for the Savior that effused with passion in a tangible way. It's never really hard to identify a saved person, is it? Typically a person who's less concerned with talk and what they say they believe, and because they are consumed with a joyful devotion and obedience. They're a person, as this woman was, who just kept on being captured and compelled by the greatness of her salvation. That is what motivates them. That is what constrains a saved person toward the love of Christ. And so the question for us this morning is, so what compels your love and worship for Christ? Does following Jesus seem like a burden to you because in your mind and in your heart, you can only see it as loss? Or are you so caught up in the wonder that Christ should pardon even you that you are compelled now to serve him? You are compelled toward him. You want to live for him. You want to sacrifice for him. You want to honor him with the totality of all that you are. And it doesn't feel hard. It doesn't feel like lost to you because it's just the natural overflow of your gratitude and your love for him. But if that is not the case, if that is not you this morning... Good news is that doesn't mean that you're not saved. Might mean you're not saved, but doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved. 
might just mean that you once again need to go back and reflect on the gravity of the debt that you owe. It's always fun to interact with new believers because they're some of the most joyful people you ever meet. They're freshly aware of that debt, freshly aware of that debt that Jesus took from them, and that is always the greatest place to be. It's no wonder to me why new believers who usually have the worst theology are always the best evangelizers. They're just busy telling everybody about that great news that they just discovered. It's also no wonder to me why those with the most broken past and shameful history often become the most used by Christ. Was certainly true in the scriptures, still true today. There's such a transformation in their life that it's nearly impossible to be denied. And so for those of you who feel numb this morning or cold, or you're walking through a season of apathetic indifference toward the things of God, the implication of this passage is that you would do well to reflect again on the sinfulness of your own sin. And because in reflecting on that sin, you recall to mind the immeasurable work of Christ in taking that from you. And you can't explain his love for you apart from that. There's always a lot of talk about the love of God, a lot of songs being written on the love of God, a lot of talk about feeling the love of God, but, but taking on your debt of sin is the essence of his love, and you cannot understand his love apart from that. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 is perhaps one of the most definitive statements in the Bible on God's love. Paul writes, but God demonstrates, that is, he puts on display, he demonstrates his own love toward us. So, so this is how you know it, this is how you see it, this is how you feel it. God demonstrates his own love toward us. How will, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Literally, in the place of us. Can you imagine dying for your worst enemy while they're still in the active state of hostility toward you? We get so worked up about the most minor thing. And so we see in this passage again, to finish out this section, the great contrast between the righteous and the self-righteous. We have before us here a very descriptive illustration that caps off an important section. There's no greater conclusion that you could come to about yourself than to understand the depravity of your own sin. Until you come to that conclusion, hear this, you remain under the curse of that sin. You remain like the Pharisee, who because he only had 50 denarii to pay, stood in judgment of God rather than understanding that he sits in the judgment of God. But for those of you who've come to that right conclusion, it's not hard to tell if you truly believe that. Because you will be like this woman 
whose understanding of the forgiveness of her sin now compels her into a state of unending love and devotion for the Savior. This is not merely an intellectual reality for her. This is something that she felt from the depth of her being. She was overwhelmed by the truth of the gospel and it took hold of her. And her life was never the same. She was transformed into something different. From that day forward, she lived for Christ. She identified with Christ. Her love and faith was in Christ. And so having a life that was completely wicked and a life that was utterly shameful, she is now, because of Christ, restored. Her dignity and honor returned to her. That debt had been paid. Her dignity and honor may have never returned to the eyes of those around her, but it returned to the eyes of the only one that matters. So what about you? What about you? Do you have confidence that your debt has been paid? And if the answer is yes, then what is it about your life that evidences that transformation? and therefore gives you that confidence? Do you now live for him and serve him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and strength? When people look at you and interact with you, do they see something different? Do they see a person so utterly transformed and defined by Christ in every aspect? Do those who know you best and are closest to you, do they scratch their heads at what has happened to you. They see a person of joy, a person of love, a person of deep gratitude for what you now are in God's courtroom. And if so, then that is the place that you want to be because that is the kind of person that Jesus will use in tremendous ways. Again, the greater your transformation, the greater your testimony. And so the single greatest reality to accompany the gospel message that you give is your transformed life. It is the ungrateful, loveless Christian who consistently undermines the message that they speak. Because if you are no different or more thankful than the world, then what is it about your message that is compelling to them? There's no power in that. Why would they want your gospel if your life seems to be the same as theirs? If you're a person who puts on display your gratitude, as this woman did, and your lavish love for Christ is what is seen by the world, and I think that is what God will most use. And when that happens, that is the greatest evidence that you have been personally forgiven. Remember, all this flowed from a person who truly understood their forgiveness. So if you're a Christian, then you have a message of hope. You have a message of tremendous burden-lifting power. And I think that is what the world most needs right now. It is always what it has needed, but it's particularly poignant in our time. 
in a time of nothing but guilt throwing and accusations and cutthroat politics, what the world most needs is forgiveness. There's almost no one out there right now talking about grace and forgiveness. It's all about justice and rights and what is owed to them for the wrong committed against them. But you give them a model of grace and forgiveness, and that is something that I think the world won't know what to do with. In fact, it's no surprise to me that God sent forth his son into a time and culture that was only and exclusively all about justice. It is all that these Pharisees knew. And so it was a time that was ripe for the message of grace and the message of forgiveness. That you know, the more hostile and the more angry and the more selfish and the more fighting for personal rights that a culture may embody, then I think the more that a life of grace and forgiveness and gratitude is going to seem attractive. And because, and hear me on this, it is not a life of conformity that people are going to notice. Rather, it's a life of transformation that people will notice. It is not hard to conform. Just fit in. Keep your mouth shut. And so the question for us becomes, so what compels us? What drives you? What captures your affections? What controls all of your decisions in this world? Is your love for Christ an overflow of his love for you, or does your life merely embody the ways of the world around you? This is the story of a woman who understood that she was not owed forgiveness. God does not owe you forgiveness. He owes you judgment. But the one who thought that he already possessed a righteousness, he is the one who would receive shame and condemnation as he thought this woman should have received. And so that again is the road presented before us this morning. It's a very clear road, very clear divide between these two paths. And so the simple call of the gospel is to trust the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers No sin too great, no shame too deep. You simply come to him. You lay your sin at the foot of his cross where he took the burden of your debt. And then by faith, you let the product of your transformed life become the vehicle through which the world can better understand the forgiveness of Christ. That is your task. As one man said on this, the silent actions of a sinful woman speak far louder than the words of the self-righteous man. When an authentically transformed life accompanies your gospel message, you have power. That is what a sinful world so desperately needs. And that is exactly what Jesus calls us into. That is his call for you, and that is what I leave you with this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you let us do this every single week. There's 
so much more that could have been said on this, but I ask that you take the simple message of this passage and drive it deep into our hearts. May all of us evidence the fruit of a transformed life, a life of joy, a life of gratitude. And may the world see this in us. May the world recognize that we are not like them, that we have a different perspective, different motives, different joy, different hopes. And so use us, Father, use us in this city, use us in a profound way to accomplish what you desire to accomplish. We know that you put this church here for a purpose. May we never grow weary in good works and delivering the message which a dying world so desperately needs. For without that message, there is only a fearful and certain end. So may we be a light in a very dark world. May you cause us to bear fruit, cause us to bear fruit that lasts. That is our desire and that is our great hope. And so as we now turn to song and sing your praises, may our hearts be filled and may your name be honored. I ask these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.